Let's go. Coming to you from the basement of the basement, it's WCPT's The Sports Cubicle, and uh, it's going to be a special episode. We're going to look back at some of our favorite conversations of the year. I couldn't get the guys to do the episode. Marver and Devin are still busy playing each other in the WCPT Fantasy Playoffs. Uh, Mercado's praying for the winner of that game that uh, they should lead to victory in the championship and for peace amongst the sports cubicle. But for this episode, we're going to look back at our favorite conversations. We talked to Lee Steinberg, the super sports agent. We talked to George Offman, local sports media personality, as he released a book this fall. We talked to Steve Wright, the former NFL offensive lineman, as well as Michael Dillon and and Alex Squadron. So enjoy, everybody, and we will be back next week as we look back at the sports stories, the ups and downs of 2023. The good times keep on rolling here on the Sports Cubicle. I'm Mike Mercado, Paul Shibari, as always, joining me. And this has been one of those great times in the Sports Cubicle where Christmas and all the other holidays are coming early because we keep getting these gifts that we don't deserve. Paulie, you played Santa Claus this time. What do you have for the amazing colleagues around the water cooler here at the Sports Cubicle? Well, our guest today is someone that has uh, represented a record eight NFL first overall picks, 64 first round picks. He's dealt with billions and billions of dollars of contracts and has raised over a billion dollars. That's billion with a B if for charity. Uh, we're talking today to sports agent Lee Steinberg. Lee, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. So you're credited as being the inspiration for the movie Jerry Maguire, famous for uh, Tom Cruise back in 1996. I wanted to know what was the, the correlation? And, and, and we should note that we saw in the background it looks like a picture of you, Cuba Gooding Jr., and Tom Cruise. So it seems like a very legitimate claim to be the inspiration. So in 1993, a film director and writer, Cameron Crowe, called me up and asked if he could follow me around to gain atmosphere for a picture that would be based on a sports agent. So he came with me to the NFL draft in 1993, where I had Drew Bledsoe as the first pick. He came up to the press conference with uh, Bill Parcells in Boston. He came to the league meetings where I was showing off a free agent named Tim McDonald. He came with me to pro scouting day at USC. He came to a series of games, my Super Bowl party, and spent time in my office. And I told him stories, lots and lots of stories. And he went off and wrote a script. And then I was technical advisor. So my job was to make sure the willing suspension of disbelief that holds you in a motion picture, the dialogue's not phony, the look on the set's not phony, got preserved. And then he gave uh, me a young actor in Cuba Gooding Jr. to take with me to the Super Bowl in Phoenix. And he had to pretend he was a wide receiver for a whole week and my client. And so he hung out with Amani Toomer and uh, and Desmond Howard. Um, I actually had to show the quarterback in the film played by Jerry O'Connell how to throw a spiral because he had gone to NYU and they didn't have football there. So um, it's been 25 years. I mean, it was uh, until the blind side, the top grossing sports theme film. Um, and I've rarely gone to an airport or out to dinner where someone didn't run up 
and either ask me to say or say to me the four words to start with show me the right now we're in the major league baseball offseason and every offseason there seems to be the hyperbole of this is going to be the biggest free agent signing season that we've ever heard but this year it doesn't feel like hyperbole because Shohei Otani is now a free agent it's the first two-way player that baseball has seen in such a long time and might win his uh, uh, second MVP award in a couple of days here. Um, with his uh, potential offseason here, he's going to be courted by so many different teams, and he's probably going to land one of the largest contracts in sports history. What are your thoughts about what he's going to do this offseason and what teams need to do to try and entice him into signing with them? Well, first of all, we've really never seen anything like this. Babe Ruth played two positions, but to have a player dominate both as a pitcher and an everyday player is unprecedented. Now, had he not been hurt and injured his pitching arm in a way where he won't pitch next year, clearly this would be the breakthrough contract in history. And if Mike Trout had $426 million, it would be bigger. He's a little older than than uh, Trout was when he signed his contract. So I think they'll figure out a way to, to have him at level A while he's playing everyday position and level B, a higher level of compensation when he's playing, um, when he's back to pitching again. But look, nobody's ever had this type of appeal. A team can sell 15,000 extra tickets a game because he's such a phenomenon. He's handsome. He's learning English. He's uh, unblemished behaviorally. He's uh, and and people want to come and see him pitch. It reminds me when I was a kid, it was Sandy Koufax in Los Angeles that people came to see. But you're going to get a guaranteed revenue flow with deals with Japan um, that the team would make with uh, 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 marketing and sponsorship um, and with extra attendance. So in addition to everything else, if it were simply that he dominates the two positions, it'd be enough to give him a record-breaking contract. Add in all the extras and revenue opportunities for a team and the fact that you're having competition. Um, so if all of a sudden the uh, uh, Dodgers and Padres and Giants and Yankees and Cubs are in it, among other things, those are the three biggest cities in America with the most capacity. It will be uh, an amazing bidding war. Now, he's been pretty clear he wants to win. And so uh, I think you have to look for a team where they've got a viable chance to make it through the playoffs and to the World Series. Well, before we let you go, Lee, I wanted to give you a chance to highlight your philanthropic efforts. Um, you know, I'm reading that you've worked with Children Now, Children's Miracle Network, a lot of children's charities. And I, I just wanted to give you the opportunity to kind of speak about that and if there was anything that you were working on currently. So um, one of the things I've worked on in the past is is something to push back against skinheads, racism, anti-Semitism. And it was a training program where I trained uh, young volunteers in how to help local police departments, how to uh, intervene in crisis situations, how to uh, promote ethnic uh, tolerance. And so that's something that I'm resurrecting. We have Sporting Green Alliance, which takes sustainable technology and wind, solar, recycling, resurfacing, and water 
uh, to stadia, arena, and practice fields um, to drop carbon emissions and energy costs and transform them into new um, educational platforms where you can see a waterless urinal, see a solar panel. And I've discovered a new set of modalities in health and uh, wellness which can stimulate athletic performance uh, in critical situations, can uh, return a player to service quicker. And it's hyperbaric oxygen and stem cells and blue, white, and red light and nanovi and cognitive treatments. And I continue to work on the concussion issue always. Lee, you're one of our favorite guests. I could already put that on there. And I could tell you the people of Chicago are going to be ecstatic to hear this and we're going to make sure that we post all over the socials all the places that they could support you they could follow you on the socials websites and whatnot because not only are you an intriguing person you're a fun conversation but you are one of these people that is just intriguing to watch all the great work that you have done and the work that your team is doing and the story that you all tell thank you so much for joining us today uh, we could do this for hours and hours but we want to thank you for your time today you've been very helpful very informative and just quite a career. It's uh, very, very inspirational to, to see what you've been up to. Thank you, guys. Good luck. We got more Thank coming you. next here on the Sports Cubicle. He's Paul Shabari. I'm Mike Mercado. We keep the good times rolling here on the Sports Cubicle. I'm Mike Mercado. It's Paul Shabari and Devin Tingo. We appreciate you making us a part of your day. In case you've missed any one of the great interviews we've been doing recently, thanks to Paul Shabari, if you missed the real-life inspiration to Jerry Maguire, that's right, Lee Steinberg joined the show. If you've missed former Raider Steve Wright, a dream come true for Paul Shabari, make sure you're checking us out on YouTube at the Sports Cubicle or wherever you get your favorite podcast at Sports from the College. And, of course, we are on WCPT 820 AM and now simulcasting Sunday nights on WSBC 1240 AM. And Paul, the holiday season has come early because you delivered a treat for us radio nerds, for us Chicago nerds, for anybody who has a pair of ears. Paul, what do you have for us today on the Sports Cubicle? Today, our guest is George Offman, a Chicago sportscaster. He's worked for WBBM News Radio. He's worked for 670 The Score. He's been with NPR. And he wrote a book called Tell Me a Story I Don't Know, Conversations with Chicago Sports Legends. George, thanks for joining the show today. Appreciate it. And I do remember 820 because that's where the score began almost 32 years ago. Yep, yep. We are now on the airwaves that you were one of the pioneers with. Uh, you were there from the beginning, if, if I'm correct, right? Right. I, I mean, the pioneer really was Mike North. He's he's the guy who actually uh, twisted Dan Lee's, the late Dan Lee's arm, who owned WXRT, to actually not turn it into a jazz station, but turn it into an all-sports station, which really pissed off the people at XRT until they met Mike and they fell in love with him. And 32 years later, here we are. When you say that uh, pissed off WXRT, that's because you guys shared a building together, right? Well, no, no. I think they were pissed off because they wanted the jazz station. They 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 didn't like the idea of having an all sports station. You know, this is, these are music people, but it was a tiny building, and suddenly, here are all these wonderful disc jockeys, and here marches in a massive amount of testosterone, and I do mean a massive amount of it, and egos and what have you. But it worked. And we, you know, I love those people there, you know, Terry Hemrit and Frankie Lee and the entire Johnny Mars. It was wonderful to to be there as cramped as it was. And let me tell you something. It's amazing that two radio stations actually fit into the building. Uh, but no, that was a, it was a wonderful experience. George, you wrote the book. 
And I'm wondering, because Paul and I have this conversation all the time. Paul and I went to media school together. We uh, were GAs together. We got in jobs together. And we talk about it all the time of the longevity, what the destination, the journey, the story that's being told within our career as storytellers, as people who bring other people into our world and expose them to these things. When you wrote the book, when you were writing it, as you were getting everything together, did you feel it was completed as somebody who's constantly trying to do new things? Or was it kind of scary for you to kind of put that last period on the last paragraph in that last chapter because there is still much more story you want to be told? How was that emotionally for you? Well, it's emotional now in the standpoint that the podcast is ending. Um, The book was just an extension. That was an idea that came up almost two years ago. I was probably halfway through where I'm at now and my nephew, Sam, was working at Triumph. And I said, what do you think? He said, bounce the idea off the guys. And so I did. And they bought it. I think part of which was that some of them knew who I was from radio. That helped a great deal. Plus, the idea of doing a book about your podcast, I don't think you see many of those. But the idea was, here are here's a compilation of 50 interviews with well-known people nationally and locally, all of whom have ties to the city of Chicago. Was I nervous? No, no. Matter of fact, I'm hoping that we sell enough books so that I can do part two. There's still another 45 plus interviews that I haven't done. I'm sad now, melancholy, knowing that I've got just a little few more edits to go and the podcast ends. It's an opus for me. You know, it's it's one of the great highlights of my career. You know, you think here's a highlight that happened 40 years ago and 30 years ago. Actually, 1977, when I left school and Mike Reese, whom I hired for my staff at the I was the sports director of the television and radio station there. um, He not only succeeded, he stayed there for 45 years. He just retired. He was the voice of SIU sports. Well, he calls me up in late well, it was, might have been early June. SIU's baseball team made the College World Series. You know, I was the voice of the Saluki baseball team. And he was then the primary guy, invited me to join him in the booth. And so for eight days, I was in Omaha, Nebraska. That is a highlight that happened way back. Here we are. <clears throat> what is this now? 47 years later, here's another highlight, my podcast. And I loved it. And another highlight, my book. I loved it. I love it. It's just... Um, it's 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 been a honor, a pleasure, and a highlight to do all of it. You know what happens next? I don't know. I'll come over to your house and have dinner. I have no idea. You're Open always advice. welcome. Open <laughs> by Polly, go ahead. What you got for us, Polly? So, George, with all of these people that you've talked to, all of the the local personalities, the athletes, was there somebody over the years that you finally got to talk to that was maybe like um, someone earlier in your career you never thought you'd get the chance, or maybe someone from your childhood that you looked up to? Yep. The answer to that is Brent Musburger, who is the last, basically, live guest that we have. And his part two is running now. Uh, Yeah, I wanted to have him a long time ago, three years ago. But I did interview him in college in 1975. I did a turn paper, and he gave me 30 minutes. And I remember talking to other people. He did the same thing for other people. He's very generous with his time as he is now. So... We finally got together to do this. And I'm thinking, you know, maybe at the 20 minute mark, I'll ask him, you know, how are we doing? Well, it was at the 50 minute mark that he said, all right, it's going to be time to wrap this up, lad. 
it's very nice to have Brent Musburger call you a lad. <laughs> He's 84 now. The stories he told are in minute description. He's incredible. So I'm 14 years old, and WBBM News Radio begins, and that's where Brett Musburger began his uh, broadcast career, which is something he never considered in college. He was a writer for the <clears throat> long-defunct Chicago American. Okay, I'm listening to him on radio, but when he went to WBBM TV, and I saw him on TV, I was mesmerized. He was, his, the pace, his voice, everything, I said, I want to be you. I want to be you. Okay. I wasn't him because, as most people know, I have a great face for radio. But in the end, uh, he was one of the inspirations for my career, along with Jack Brickhouse, who was the longtime voice of the Cubs. And people don't realize the White Sox and the Bears and the Sting, the, you know, the, the then uh, uh, soccer team. But Musburger was like the piece de resistance. He was the guy that I really wanted. And he gave me a fabulous 57-minute interview in which we cut up the two parts. But what's most amazing is there's a guy whose career continues and he's 84. And I think of people like Hubie Brown, who's an analyst for ESPN's NBA. He's 90, 90, and he's great. That doesn't mean I will be working until 90. I'm hoping to get up tomorrow morning, you know, but that's, he's the one guy. He's the one guy that I really wanted. And, you know, here we are near the end and we got him. George, how do you feel about interviews, conversations with schmucks like us, the next generation of whatever the podcasters are, the radio? I love doing this. Are you kidding? I love doing this, especially with guys like you um, and particularly schmucks like you. No, I just <laughs> uh, I, 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 it's you're part of the next generation. That's really important what that's going to look like because it's changed dramatically. It really has changed really dramatically. Uh, and to the point where if it was my business now, that'd be great to say, hey, you know, you want to try. No, no, mine's done. That's that's in the past. But it's great to talk to guys like you because you're trying to succeed. You want to succeed. I can tell you guys want to succeed. And, you know, I, I won't give you the advice that the news director, <laughs> this is in college. Uh, his name was Ed Brown. And this is his advice. This is a guy who chain smoked unfiltered cigarettes. He said, get out of the business. Last question for you, George. Through all the years, what was your favorite Chicago sports memory? Whether you covered it or whether it was something before your career, what sticks out to you? Probably June of 2010. So I, in, in, when Webio ended in uh, June of 2009, and I went to Dave and at WGN. I said, look, do you have any work for me? And he said, no. Called me back a month later. I said, you know, we have some part-time stuff. Can you come in? I said, I, I do, but I, I've got a problem with my throat. They're saying it's laryngitis. It wasn't. It was a paralyzed vocal cord. And during the summer, I couldn't speak. I, I was like whispering. And I had to go to the Bastion Voice Institute in Lombard, where they were giving all these exercises to do. And finally, I said, there's an option. You could shoot a gel in your throat. You get 80% of your voice back. I did, and a week later, I'm on WGN Radio. Great. Fast forward to Game 6 in Philadelphia the night before. Then Dan Zampillo, who used to work at the score and was the uh, uh, he was the program director, I forgot what his title was, said, George, would you like to go cover Game 6 in Philadelphia? I said, let me think about it. Yes. <laughs> and suddenly I'm on a plane, and I am in Philadelphia. I'm part of the broadcast team. 
and I'm covering game six and not getting to near the end of the game. And they have uh, members of the media and broadcast people in the lobby near the locker rooms. So if your team wins, you're on the bench. Well, suddenly Patrick Kane scores 30 seconds later, I'm on the bench and I'm watching the ceremony and I'm watching a Stanley cup go right by me. It was extraordinary. What an extraordinary experience to be part of where you never thought you would be, but fate had it. So as a highlight, and there've been many of them, that one stands out because I'm there, I'm on the ice and I'm, there's a Stanley cup next to me for crying out loud. That was just like unbelievable. This was one of the most amazing treats. I think I'm going to say personally, I hope the fans enjoyed it. I know they're going to, because you know, legend is with us, but I, I think I speak for Paul, for Devin. This has been one of the coolest conversations, interviews we've ever done. Uh, George Hoffman is one of the legit legends that we have <laughs> in this industry. And for him to join a bunch of dumb dumbs like us here on the sports. <laughs> I'm not even there. a legend in my own house. Come on, give me a break. Uh, well, that's the trick <laughs> to a good marriage, right? It's like just uh, to keeping us home right, a I'm little a bit. I'm alone. I'm talking to the wall. Am I a legend? They're not, call, they're not talking back. So, Polly, you want to bring us home, buddy? Uh, yeah, we got to sell a book here. Uh, Tell Me a Story I Don't Know. Conversations with Chicago Sports Legends is out now. You can find it anywhere that you buy books. Uh, George Offman, congratulations on releasing the book. We hope to hear more from you. I uh, can't wait for part two. Thank you so much for, for joining us today. My pleasure, guys, and good luck to all of you. rolling here on the sports cubicle here on WCPT 820 AM and WSBC 1240 AM. It's Paul Shavari. I'm Mike Mercado. And oh my goodness, you know, it's a glorious day when Paulie has that big old smile on his face. You know, he's worked up some evil scheme, something good and delicious for all the listeners here on the sports cubicle. Paulie, you outdid yourself today. What do you have for the, uh, for all the colleagues here around the cubicle? A former NFL player that played with the Cowboys, the Colts and my, Raiders. So I definitely had to reach out to him. And as I was researching, I found out that our guest Steve Wright was also on Survivor. And he also invented the cloudburst misting system, uh, which I was able to uh, enjoy in a very hot 1996 Atlanta Olympics. And he joins us today. Steve Wright, thank you for joining the Sports Cubicle. Hey, Paul and Mike. It's my honor. I appreciate you having me there. Well, I wanted to ask you about your book, Aggressively Human. And it's, um, you know, discovering humanity and the NFL, reality, television, and life. And, you know, I think for the football fan, you get, you know, a lot of uh, some of the treats, the stories of playing in the NFL. But more importantly, you know, you're, you're approaching a conversation that I think needs to be had nowadays, trying to have, you know, as well as the aggressive mindset to approaching life, to have the kindness and compassion. Could you tell us a little bit about what inspired you to write this book? Right on, man. It's uh, thank you for for bringing this up. Yeah, my my book uh, kind of just came to be as as I just started writing uh, during the pandemic. I had no name for it. Didn't have a theme for it. Just started writing. Uh, my my philosophy has always been just take care of what's in front of you. I had all these great stories in me, and just like you two do, and everybody else does. I I've been fortunate. I've had quite a few. Didn't realize you you were down in Atlanta as well. Down at the Olympics, that was uh, that's one of my one of my bigger honors, even over the top of football. I think eleven years of football starting my company there, but the the book came to being by just starting to write, and then as I was writing, I was really realizing that 
you know, looking back at my father and my grandfather, they were very compassionate, empathetic men that uh, always led with a smile and a handshake and talked to everybody. And that's who I am. And then I had to turn on the beast, you know, starting in high school and in sports, if you were going to excel, which every kid wants to do. And then it led to scholarship offers and then led to the Cowboys and turning it on and off. And then, you know, the more you see it in society today, there's just a uh, I'm not going to do any politics, but, um, you know, just the the right and the left. And the my, my thing is yin and yang. You got to have both. You got to have toughness. You got to have anger. You got to have be ready to turn it on and protect yourself. As my wife says, I've got my, my spirit animal is the golden retriever. But it's definitely a Rottweiler sitting inside of me that I, I've really learned through my Buddhist way of meditating and everything else to keep the beast down. And that's where I'm in a happier place. But yeah, it's just it's the it's the it's the pendulum of, of not being too soft and not being too hard and treating everybody as as one, which you just don't see that anymore. You know, just simply walking through a grocery store, everybody's looking at the ground or somebody fighting and arguing. And so there's yeah, I just kind of felt it was a good time and the, the theme just developed and there there's uh, aggressively human. Steve, I am so excited to talk about uh, what we're going to call the better half, Lizzie, in just a little bit, because there is something so commendable about such a uh, a stoic yet compassionate and uh, uh, individual like yourself who's lived a very unique life. And yet you have this other person, your partner, who brings up this other side of you and helps you explore this journey. And before we dive deep into aggressively human, part of that is the human side of it, right? You're not just a football player. You're not just a partner. You're not just a son. You're not just a friend. You're all this combined. You're an entrepreneur. You, you like watching movies on Sunday morning, all these different things. How hard it, or how long did it take you to develop? The idea of knowing when to turn it on, turn it off, the lessons you learned from your grandfather and your father to say, at this moment, I need to be the Rottweiler, but at this moment, I need to be the golden retriever. How long did it take you as a man in, in the society when you were coming up in the league that you played in to develop that habit? For sure, simply when you strap your helmet on and you come out of the locker room and you strap your helmet and you walk across the sideline to get onto the practice field it's full bore. You turn into an animal, no matter if, you know, you had a death in the family the day before or you're hung over or whatever it is, it's, you know, you just, you, you go from zero to a hundred, just red line. But then when you step off the field, yeah, I'm back down to who I am. It was, it was actually a, a fairly easy process for me, but it was, uh, it was living more of the compassionate life. And the more I've been doing this, it just like, yeah, like any habit, it just develops more. So it's, it's almost like one of these things. I think it takes 20 days to break a habit of whatever, you know, sugar or cigarettes or something, alcohol or whatever. It, it also feeds on the positive too. So the more I found that the more I smiled at people and stuck a hand out to shake hands or just, you know, help somebody, it really began to feed on itself and felt right to me. It was, it, it was an easy process that I think everybody can get to, but you've got to put an effort into it and be ready for people not to say hello back and roll with it and just keep going and stay on your path. You know, so now, now we got to bring it to the football questions. You mentioned one of your first position coaches in the NFL was Mike Ditka, who, of course, you know, very legendary stature here in Chicago. Tell us a little bit what it was like to work under Coach Ditka. 
Oh man, I love Mike. You know, I'm a 21 year old punk, and there was 123 agents trying out for the team. And for some reason, he just saw something in me and liked me, and he'd see me frustrated, you know, in practice. And I knew I was going to get caught. It was, you know, there was, there was they had a number one and a number three draft pick that year. Glenn Titansor and uh, Howard Richards was the number one draft pick, so for sure I was I was out. But I worked so hard and had the right mindset that they kept me. Mike would see that. You know, I was frustrated and he'd throw an arm around my neck and he'd say, let's go for a walk. This is during practice when I got my helmet on and everybody's standing around waiting for their turn. He'd just go for the walk with me. And he'd say, "My Coach Meyer, Coach Meyer is the offensive line coach. He's driving you crazy, isn't he? You know, and I was just so frustrated. And I read about this a lot in the book and Mike and quite a few different places, but he just flipped my world upside down. He'd say, Steve, everybody here has got the physical tools. From the shoulders up is going to separate everybody. Deal with it. You're going to get your ass kicked learn fast. You know, you're only as good as your last play. And it's just like, wow. And another one, uh, one of the ones that threw me upside down is, hey, you worry if he stops yelling at you. I was like, whoa, you know, for a 21 year old kid, my coach is yelling at me. And now what it it would be like if he just didn't say anything after, you know, a play, it would just know that he's just not looking at me anymore and he's giving up. So he was grinding on me a lot. I think he just he loved how I how how much I was hustling. I was kind of in Superman shape. One of the preseason games, punter Danny White ran onto the field, and yeah, I was count the the blockers in front of him, and there better be ten. And I'm standing there, and I'm not on that team, and I'm just all of a sudden Danny starts freaking out and waving his hands around. I don't know what made me do it, but I'm looking around and nobody's moving, so I just ran onto the field at Texas Stadium. You know, super ballsy. And I ran in and they just pointed me to a hole to fill. And I blocked my guy and I came off and Dick had grabbed me and just, you know, was just so thankful that they didn't have to call a timeout. You know, just being heads up. But but Dick, it was Dick, it was the bomb. And the book is <laughs> Aggressively Human, Discovering Humanity in the NFL, Reality TV and Life. Steve, we're going to let you go on one last football one. This has been amazing. I literally, I could do this. I know Paul can do this for four hours. I can do this for about three hours and 59 minutes. Best football player you ever saw whether it was a teammate or somebody you played against who is the guy when i say this was the best player could be a lineman could be defensive end could be a punter when you got on the field in the nfl who was the one guy you saw on the other side you're like oh man yeah I, you know just can i can i go with more than one please uh, absolutely yeah it's a, i mean i'd i was in playing against lawrence taylor reggie Ooh. white bruce smith neil smith Every day in practice, Howie Long, Howie, Howie made me a, so much of a better player. And I go into all that in my book. And also, too, just wouldn't like to. And then, yeah, you, you, Bo, Bo was, Bo was one dimensional, but he was better than anybody in that one dimension. And that's just pure explosive speed that was, you know, shocking to watch. Any any long runs you see of him, I'm supposed to be out in front of him, and I'm chasing behind him ten yards. You know, he's already blown past where I'm supposed to be going and. So I'm just looking for fumbles, but I'd like to push my my website too, my, my author website of writeauthor.com. Everything's on there. And I'm having a virtual book release this weekend. All that's on the website as well. 
thriftwriteauthor.com. You can also check out Aggressively Human Discovering Humanity in the NFL, reality TV, and life if you want to see the hardcover. But please check out the website. Also, check out the signing. This is going to be amazing. We'll be making sure to post everything in which you're doing. And uh, Steve, before I throw it to Polly to uh, take us home, I want to tell you something right now. I know you don't watch modern NFL, or at least, you know, you it's yeah. through the grapevines and everything. But I'll tell you this much. So much of what you told us today, the weird correlation that Chicago sports fans are going to eat up, talking about Bo and his explosiveness, what it means being one-dimensional, how does it impact the team? Justin Fields and the Chicago Bears are seeing that right now. Talking about Al Davis compared to the McCaskies and Hallis family, how Chicago right. Bears feel about them. What you did, talking about your experiences, you have no idea. Beyond the amazing work you're doing from your business to the book and your NFL career and working with your wife, Bears fans are going to eat this interview up. And I thank you so much, Mr. Wright, for joining us on the show. And, Pauly, take us home. Right Great on, job. Mike. Great job, Raider Nation. Shout out. Thank you, guys you got Mike. Thanks, Mike. Well, Steve, once again, thanks for coming on to the show. Congratulations on the book release. Congratulations to your wife as well on the book release. And uh, tell her we're looking forward to that Todd Marinovich book that she's working on. Right on, man. Thank, thank you. Appreciate it. We got more coming up next here on the Sports Cubicle. It's Paul Shivari. I'm Mike Mercado. What an amazing guest, Steve Wright. Check out his book. Go to writeauthor.com. Aggressively human, discovering humanity in the NFL, reality TV, and life. Shout out Lizzie and Steve. We got more coming up next. Life in the G, written by Alex Squadron, who is a basketball freelance writer, but he's also worked for Slam and the New York Post, and he joins us on the call today. Alex, thank you so much for being a part of this. For sure, guys. Thank you so much for having me. Um, this is awesome. So I really appreciate it. So I guess my first question is, what made you want to cover the G League and kind of how these uh, these guys make the jump from the minor league to the association? Yeah, for sure. Um, I think for me, like you said, I was working for Slam previously and, you know, was covering the NBA and, you know, the basketball world at large and was just surprised at how little attention was paid to the G League. Um, you know, obviously you guys, like that intro is awesome. You guys also have the Windy City Bulls in Chicago. Um, mm -hmm. And just like, uh, you know, it was always just surprising. The talent level that was coming from the G League didn't seem to um, like connect to just the coverage of it. Like it just, it wasn't uh, enough, in my opinion, based on the amount of players who were coming from the G League and going on to having a huge impact uh, in the NBA. So the inspiration was really like, um, you know, this is becoming a bigger and bigger thing. Uh, and more and more players are coming out of the G League or being sent down to the G League, and nobody's really spotlighted. Uh, one, like, what's the experience for a G League player, which is a lot different from, you know, kind of the glitz and glamour of the NBA. And then two, like, what is that um, kind of pursuit of the NBA look like, that grind to try to uh, achieve your dream? So uh, that's really what, what pushed me to pursue it. And this is where it gets interesting about the G League is for the longest time, it was the juniors and the seniors coming out of UConn, North Carolina, U of I, UCLA. That's not the case. I mean, Wemby, Victor Wembenyama was playing in the G League. A lot of these cats that we're seeing coming up are G League players. I mean, hell, we saw what happened with the Ball Brothers, except for Lonzo with the UCLA. We've seen that these guys are making those jumps is it crazy covering the g league the difference of financial demographic is somebody like wemby who you know is going to be the number one pick he's going to go to san antonio he's going to get the best out of everything and then the guy who's trying to make his name in the g league to make his name in the nba yeah it, it's interesting so um like the g league added this new program called the ignite um and that was to create another pathway to the nba uh as opposed to college where guys can basically get paid um right out of high school uh, in some cases, like Scoot Henderson played two years of 
G League basketball for getting uh, drafted. And I think it's really good preparation for the NBA. I mean, the, the competition uh, really doesn't compare to the college level. And I think it's great like for players to have that um, you know, opportunity. I think the kind of counter to that is like, I think re- like other G League teams, the experience is very different from the Ignite. Um, the Ignite is very much like preparing, you know, guys who are going to be high draft picks for the NBA. Um, and those guys are earning, you know, in some cases, $500,000 for a season. Uh, and they don't even really play a full G League schedule. Um, it's more of almost like, you know, a showcase and again, preparing those guys and developing those guys. Uh, and then there's kind of like the team I follow, the, the Birmingham Squadron, which is affiliated with the New Orleans Pelicans. Um, you know, those guys are making uh, a standard G League contract. The season I followed them was around 37000 um, So it's just a very different experience from a kind of the Ignite. So I think the Ignite is great, uh, you know, to obviously provide guys like Scoot um, that opportunity and, and give them kind of really good coaching and really good preparation for the NBA. But I think a lot of G Leaguers, guys who've been grinding it out for a while, would say, uh, you know, it's not really the G League. Like, it's not like it, it doesn't really reflect the same kind of grind um, that a lot of these guys are going through. But it is just like an awesome thing. And obviously bringing more attention to the G League as well, which I think was one of the goals of the NBA um, creating that pathway. When you're covering, whether it's Birmingham or you're coming up here to the Windy City Bulls or you're going to, you know, Sycamore or whatever, you know, does it surprise you? that the level of talent from these dudes who are absolute world beaters in basketball, some of the best gym warriors, and they can't crack the NBA because the talent depth is so much now in the G League that it's not just overseas. It's not just dudes like Luca. It is now homegrown here, and they never get to to crack into the NBA. No, for sure. I think you nailed it. Like, it, it's crazy. I mean, I played basketball growing up. I played pickup basketball. You know, I think of myself as a decent player. And then you <laughs> see these dudes who are um, – I mean, it's just otherworldly talents um, and the fact that they're not good enough. um, I mean, I I shouldn't even say not good enough. I think most of them are. It's just kind of a numbers game. Um, You know, there's only so many spots in the NBA. That's probably one of the more exclusive far-fetched jobs to obtain in the world. Um, And so um, to see up close just the level of talent, uh, how much work they put into it, uh, and, you know, to realize that these guys are are still – you know, not in the the top league is pretty baffling. And then there's all these other great leagues in Europe and, you know, Asia and just like the amount of talent is truly insane. Um, But yeah, I think a lot of G League guys would say like, you know, the difference between the bottom half of the NBA and the top half of the G League is not that huge. Um, You know, a lot of the players are kind of interchangeable and it's just about, you know, getting the right opportunity, uh, the right fit, just, um, you know, in a lot of cases, like when you get those tiny opportunities, just not messing up any small thing. Uh, Cause that can be enough to just basically cross you off a list and give the opportunity to a guy who uh, might be just a little bit, you know, a little bit better or um, you know, the, the margin is, is very thin. So um, yeah, to answer your question uh, it, it's crazy to see, you know, especially since a lot of these guys are moving back and forth, you know, you can go to a G league game for, you know, $20 and see a guy who a couple months later is having a big impact in the NBA playoffs. So uh, it, it was really cool to to have the access that I did and to get to experience the season up close because, um, yeah, I mean, you know that these guys are amazing to watch. We talked beforehand, Alex, how your last name's Squadron and you followed the Birmingham Squadron. Tell us a little bit about that relationship, how kind of that started and how receptive the front office or the players were to you when you started chronicling them. Yeah, when we were talking, I, I 
it's good to have just a platform to clarify this. So uh, <laughs> my last name just coincidentally is the same as the the team name of the team that I followed, uh, the Birmingham squadron. And that was purely a coincidence. Um, well, I, I should say that I chose the team in part because I thought it was like destiny and, you know, it seemed absurd for me to follow a G league team and not follow the one that had my name. Uh, but yeah, kind of the process was um, I felt like to write about life in the G league, I really had to be fully embedded um, and to kind of live life in the G league to, to kind of accurately portray um you know, the grind of the season and then, you know, get the emotions of the players and what it's like as they're grinding to, to achieve their dreams. Um, and so I just like was looking at the list of teams and the one with my name jumped off the page. And so I reached out to them uh, and, you know, because the G league just doesn't get a lot of coverage and um, you know, not as many requests, they were just totally open and, and, you know, receptive to the idea uh, the PR rep for the squadron, Joseph Hooven, I have to shout him out. He, um, was just like totally on board and, and the, the whole organization was so welcoming, uh, and kind of from day one, they let the, the team know what, like my intentions were and that I was going to be around. And, um, you know, it took a while for people to kind of open up to me and, uh, kind of understand the vision, but, um, you know, a, a few weeks in, I felt like I was a part of the team. So uh, to get that level of access, you know, I was in, um, film sessions and player development meetings and team dinners, and I traveled with them and, um, you know, spoke to them every day. And uh, for someone who's covered the NBA, which is um, like the access is great too. Like it, it still can be frustrating, um, you know, how limiting it can be in certain situations. So uh, to have just that, um, that level of, you know, access and just um, to have them be so open to, to me being there was so refreshing and, and made the book what it is. So uh, just a huge thank you to the squadron organization and, you know, everybody who was a part of that season. Alex Squadron joins us today. The book is Life in the G, Minor League Basketball, and the Relentless Pursuits of the NBA. You can get your hands on it. So exciting times about that. What I love about these stories and what I love about sports fans who are also either journalists, authors, investigators, researchers, and they're able to put a project together and they put themselves in it, right? Whether it's a movie, a book, music, whatever. And in this case, the human interest of you watching these ballers, these world-class athletes, and some of them, most of them aren't going to get to the ultimate dream of the NBA. Well, you know, for all the stories that we've seen of whether you're a Laker or Heats or any of these guys making it, the idea of watching these guys, some of these guys not get their dreams manifested. How was it for you as a person, as the observer, watching them and, and telling their story to see some of these dreams not make it? We've seen it in hard knocks, right? Like how hard it is when somebody right. gets cut. What did you, what were your emotions? What were you fighting? What were you as the, the creator and the, the artist behind this? What were the emotions of seeing some of these dreams not coming through? Yeah, it, it's a great question. Um, because I think as an author, you know, you try to, to stay on the sidelines and, you know, you, you want to capture the emotions, but you also don't want to get swept up in it because your job is to, to write, um, you know, to capture the truth of the experience and to, um, you know, kind of separate yourself from, you know, the experience of the players. Uh, but that being said, it's impossible not to, as you're going through the season and you get to know these guys, uh, just root for them to make it. So, uh, and I was just with such a great group, you know, guys who were working so hard and uh, were just great guys. So um, it was tough. You know, it's just like you, the, the more you get to know them, uh, their goals, their dreams, their backgrounds, 
you just so badly um, want them to make it. Uh, and I won't like spoil anything, but um, you know, obviously, like you said, like everybody can make it. And it's an interesting dynamic because while they're all kind of rooting for each other too, they're also competing with each other. You know, these guys, like one guy getting an opportunity means that another one probably doesn't. Um, so um, it, it is really tough. And, and I'll say that there are some scenes in there where um, hopefully the reader can feel the emotion of it because I certainly was uh, when I wrote it. So, um, you know, definitely I had players really open up to me and, and get real emotional and, um, you know, you try to just capture that and, and tell their stories as best you can. So the Barkley marathons are a race unlike any other. And if you want to see how true that statement is, you have to check out this documentary that blew my mind away. You talk about 30 for 30 levels of detail. You talk about classmanship when it comes to documentaries, when you're hitting the sports world. And we are excited to bring in the guy who filmed it, who edited it, who did all the crazy stuff a director needs to do of the 2023 Barkley Marathon documentary is Michael Dillon. Michael, I don't even know where to begin because as somebody, Paul and I are huge film fans and I started watching this. I'm like, okay, this is pretty intriguing. This is pretty interesting. Oh my goodness. This is going to be a rabbit hole that I'm going to go down. Isn't it? How did this come together? This, this journey of finding what seems to be the fight club that nobody talks about and getting in with this, uh, this little community. Yeah. I think I had the same experience you did just about five or six years earlier. Once you learn about the race, it just keeps sort of sucking you in with every new detail that that you pick up on. Um, I first heard about it, I think it was 2015. Um, I was at a film festival in Seattle for a different project I'd worked on. And there was a documentary there about the race. And it was the first time I'd ever heard of it. And that documentary is still out. I think you can find it on YouTube, um, Barkley Marathons, The Race That Eats Its Young. And I just was like totally sucked in um, by the runners, by the course, by Laz, the race director. And my good friend, Joe McConaughey, who uh, my documentary focuses on, me and him have worked on a number of different projects. And I think basically since then, he's wanted to run it and I've wanted to film it. And as you learn, as you learn more about the race, getting into the race for runners is difficult. There's like a pretty secretive application process. Even when you figure that out, they only let 40 runners in every year. So Joe's been applying for five years to get in. And this is the first time he was accepted. And then there's also a limited amount of media spaces that the race director holds. And we were able to get the last one. And I was able to get that by going through Joe, who reached out to the race director on my behalf. So um, I just managed to get in sort of last one in, according to Laz. And yeah, it was it was awesome to be there. I mean, being there in person is everything that that you want it to be based on, you know, the videos that I'd seen. It's just like a really one of a kind experience. Yeah, so you you wanted to talk about Lazarus oh, Lake, race director. <laughs> and and yeah, that going into that, I mean, obviously he's such a character. Were you expecting him to be like who he was that you saw in that documentary that clued you into what the Barkley Marathons were? Yeah, you, you never know. I mean, he's like that even more so in that original documentary. I think they spend more time focusing on him. And showing up, I was just, I was wondering how much of that is him performing when he has an audience versus how much is that who he is all the time. And that's who he is all the time. Um, the day before the race, they invite the media to come out and film him putting up one book. Um, you know, the race has checkpoints, their books hidden in the woods, and we get to film him and meet him the day before. And from the moment I got out of my car and just like walk up to where he is, he's already going. He's got one liner after one liner. He's got a comment about everything. He doesn't need an audience. He's just making jokes for himself. And if like you're there and you can keep up, it's it's the best. Um, so yeah, there was no shortage of of material with him. 
yeah, I mean, there's, I mean, there's stuff on the cutting room floor, just like comments he's making and great insights that he's got. I feel like we should describe what the Barkley marathons are for those listening that. Don't yeah, for get sure. It. Yeah. So could you, could you kind of give like your best explanation as to what sets this race apart from other races? Sure. So the Barkley marathons are, uh, oh, it's called a 100 mile race, but runners and crew all agree that it's closer to 130 miles and it takes place in the mountains of Tennessee. Um, it happens every March but the dates are always kept secret as much as possible. And runners are challenged to run five loops through the woods, um, five 20 to 25 mile loops, more or less. And they're not allowed to have any technology or GPS. So at the beginning of the race, a course map is placed out one map with the route and runners have to get their own maps and mark their own trail, figure out their own compass bearings and all that. And then when they're on course, the way they prove they've run the actual course is they have to find books that are being, that have been hidden in the woods. And then they have to tear out a page from that book that corresponds to their bid number. When they get back to camp, they hand over all of their pages to Lazarus Lake, the race director. He counts them, makes sure you hit every book. And then you have some time with your crew and you have to get right back on trail essentially because you have 60 hours to complete it. And it's not just a 60 hour cutoff. You have to finish each lap in under 12 hours to be allowed to go back out on the next lap. So there's a cutoff every 12 hours. Where it takes place in Tennessee and at the time of year it is in March, Weather is typically a huge obstacle. You can get snow, you can get high heat, you can get really dense fog. The race takes place off trail, so there's no trail to follow. You're sort of just navigating through the woods. So if it turns out to be a little bit foggy and you make one wrong turn, like your race could be over. It's a really remote race that's sort of gained a bit of a following over the past few years as documentaries have come out about it. What really just, I think, blew my mind the most beyond the characters is the athletic part of it because when i first saw this it almost and this is how you can't judge a book by its cover i'm like is this more like an activity a hobby like what and then you realize that these are supreme ultra marathon athletes they're just normal people they you walk across them every single day they're not six foot eight they're not 300 pounds they're not these gigantic what we think are super athletes but they are super athletes were you surprised even though i guess you you're with friends with john who really for a first timer showed out like a baller like what were you surprised just the dedication, the amount of athleticism, the the amounts of sacrifice and the amount of teamwork, which really caught me off guard that takes place in these marathons? Yeah, so I've I've worked with Joe in a couple of different projects. He's um his big thing is what's known as fastest known time attempts. Uh they're called FKTs. So he hikes these big, you know, 800,000, 2000 mile long trails and he goes out and he tries to do them, you know, faster than anyone's done them before. And so I've been with him on a couple of those trips. And uh, just a couple of years ago, he did the Arizona Trail, which is 800 miles from Mexico to Utah. And he had a crew on that trip led by his wife, Katie, who is also his crew at the Barkley. And so I'd seen them work together and how she leads a crew and how she like how much of a team effort it is. So that wasn't too surprising for me. What was surprising was how stacked the field was at Barkley this year. And that's funny because like if you haven't heard of the race, you're not going to know any of these names. But if you have followed the race at all and you sort of know a little bit about the ultra running world, like I feel like after we got there and we saw who else was sort of rolling up to camp, I was like, oh man, they're here, they're here. Like, and the weather this year was really good, which isn't always the case. And so there was a lot of talk beforehand um, amongst the runners and the crews. It was like, wow, this could be a year that a couple different people finish, if not even more than that. You know, it's funny because I met, I said John, John was one of the guys that finished John Kelly. Yeah. Yeah. Awesome. Joe showed out really well, like a baller for a first timer. And you saw, this is where the team aspect, I mean, the the van life and everything, but as a director, 
what what were you looking for when this project came together? Was it the characters? Was it going to be the the grind of it? Were as a creator, but somebody who I assume like sports on some level, whether it's a super fan or just as a casual viewer, like that world of it. As a director, what were you looking to tell the story of beyond just your friend who's doing some amazing stuff and the people surrounding him, but this entire story? Yeah, I think what I really wanted to do is just show what it feels like to be there. You know, it's a really hard race to plan for because you don't know how successful anyone's going to be. You know, Joe could have gone out there and gotten lost on the first loop and then that's his experience. Um, and, you know, so beforehand, I tried a little bit to to talk to other runners, um, introduce myself in case, you know, their stories sort of turned into something bigger. And, you know, if something happened to Joe, we could sort of veer off. But really, the LAS restricts media access just to the camp and to one spot on the course, which you have to hike to. Um, so you can't really follow the runners all that much when they're on course. So my goal originally was just tell Joe's story, um, you know, get that out there because I know he's such a talented athlete and he's a good friend. Then beyond that, to sort of give the audience, you know, the feeling of being at camp. And one of the reasons that Laz even has space for media media um, at camp is because it's such a restrictive space. They have to comply with uh, state park guidelines. They can't have an audience come in. So he res reserves those spots for media because he wants people to get a chance who can't make it to see what happened at the race. And it has such a big following that I knew it was just like, people just want to see what happened this year. You know, you're going to hear the stories online. You're going to see Keith on Twitter account, but to actually see how it went down um, is what a lot of the audience is looking for. And so that was the original goal was just put people at camp and then whatever develops, follow it as best I can. And, you know, you don't know what's going to happen each year. So um, I feel very lucky that the stories sort of developed the way they did. This was an incredible year to be there. But yeah, I mean, it's, it's impossible to plan for. It's Barkley Marathon's documentary. He's the director, the editor, the guy behind the camera who shows us into that world. It's Michael Dillon. Michael, where else can people find it besides on YouTube? Can they go support you on a website and be ready for any future announcements that you might have down the pipeline? YouTube is probably where I post most frequently. Uh, my production company is called Pilot Field, uh, pilotfield.com or on Instagram at Pilot Field. Those are the places to get, to get updates. But yeah, I mean, anything, if you're following on YouTube, you're going to see it all. Make sure you're following us on Twitter at Sports Cubicle TV and on YouTube at the Sports Cubicle. We'll be making sure that we connect with Pilot Field and, of course, Michael Dillon, so you guys can see the interview and links to the amazing documentary, the Barkley Marathons documentary. Paul Shabari, Mike Mercado, we want to thank you, Michael Dillon, for joining us here on the Sports Cubicle. It was an absolute pleasure. Thanks, guys. This was great. Well, you can find all of these interviews in their entirety. Just head to YouTube where you can search for the Sports Cubicle as well as soundcloud.com slash WCPT820 where we have all of our episodes in full. I want to thank you for listening. We're going to be back next week. We're looking back at the stories, top stories of 2023. Congratulations to Northwestern and Northern Illinois football teams. Uh, you can follow the Sports Cubicle on Twitter at Sports Cubicle TV. So long everybody. We will see you next week. Sorry for the clip show. Have no fears, we got stories for you.